a time of God's patience. A time of God's patience. Doesn't everybody just love when God has a time of patience with us? I know I have appreciated God's patience in my life. But we're going to be in the book of Judges this morning. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn there. If not, we'll have them up on the screen as well. But we're going to be in the second chapter this morning. And last week, just to catch up to speed a little bit, we were in the book of Joshua. And that book records how with the strength and courage of God that Joshua had led the people uh, through many battles and difficulties And it was under his leadership that there was this swift and thorough conquest of the enemy's armies and different cities throughout the promised land. And under Joshua, Israel was reunited as one army. And Joshua was a tremendous military leader. And the book of Judges is is kind of a sequel to the book of Joshua. So we left off with, with seeing this, this Joshua also as a tremendous political leader in that he did as God said and he followed his instructions as, as Joshua divided the promised land between the tribes, charging each tribe with the responsibility of driving out the remaining enemy from its own territory. And while Joshua was a tremendous military and political leader, he was an even stronger spiritual leader. And so while he was alive, the people stayed committed to God. But after Joshua's death, no one was there to fulfill Joshua's sandals as Joshua had Moses's. And so after Joshua's death, no central human figure, no leader on a human level, replaced him to lead the nation as a whole. No one held the tribes accountable in driving out the remaining enemy from their own territories. Some tribes were certainly more successful than others. As you read through the book of Judges, you will see that. But as a nation, as a whole, they failed to possess the land completely. After Joshua's death, it seemed like the people had lost their focus. It was a time of God's patience. But, of course, at some point God said, that's enough. That's enough. And he called them out on not doing as he had commanded them to do. So before we read the text this morning, we just bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it continues, as as you said it would, to not return void, to, to do what you had sent it forth to do, and that's to, to equip us, to help us to understand who you are and who we are in light of who you are. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your word this morning, and we ask you to just uh, help us to hear what it is that you want us to hear. Help us to change uh, through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Judges chapter 2, starting with verse 1, says this. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said I would never break my covenant with you. Isn't it wonderful that God is faithful? I certainly have appreciated God's faithfulness in my life. He goes on to continue, though, in verse 2. He says, for your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy 
their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that you will no longer drive out the people. I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. The people didn't keep their promise to God. To serve the Lord their God. To obey him only. Sure, they had taken possession of the land, but they had not completely followed God's instructions. And partial obedience is not obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And so in verse 4, the angel continues. When the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly as they called this place Bochum, which means weeping. And they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Now you would think the people have turned in, in repentance. They're actually sorrowfully, you know, sorry for what they had done. They're turning back to the God that they love. That's repentance to turn away and to turn back. And, and you think, okay, they're on the right path. They're going to follow God. They're going to continue the conquest of the promised land. And the nation would for a little while. But we read in verse 10 in this same chapter these words that set the whole stage for the book of Judges. Verse 10 says this, After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Due to neglect, passing on what they had learned onto the next generation, it would set the nation up to enter into a cycle that would be repeated again and again. It's been observed that the book of Judges reminds us that the only lesson we as humans learn consistently from history is that we do not learn from history. Israel failed to completely follow God's commands to completely destroy everything that God had commanded them to do in the promised land. In the many cities, they were supposed to destroy everything, and that included men and women. Now, I do understand this is a really difficult concept to think that that's what God had actually instructed the people to do. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that God had told the Israelites to completely even to destroy the people in these cities. But we have to keep it into perspective. We have to be able to view it from how God would be viewing it. And God was using the Israelites to, as his instruments of judgment for the inhabitants. They were wicked people, and God had said enough. And so God was ridding the land of that wickedness. But the Israelites failed to completely obey. They forgot the covenant that they had made with their God. And that led to disobedience. And this disobedience opened a door for the nation to be influenced in a negative way by tolerating the wickedness of the inhabitants. And that led to disregard of God's righteousness, which led to doing what seemed right in their own eyes. 
which led to God's judgment through foreign oppression, which led to people calling out to God, which led to God sending a deliverer in the form of a judge, hence the name of the book, Judges, which led to a time of peace. Unfortunately, as each generation that had entered into that time of peace died off, another generation grew up and did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done. And the next generation would then follow in their cyclical footsteps, beginning with the forgetting of the covenant with God and his instructions to disobedience and regarding, disregarding God's righteousness again, and around and around they went. And our companion book puts it this way. The author writes, Peace, rebellion, painful and sometimes embarrassing correction in the form of an outside oppressor, remorse, crying out to God, the emergence of a new leader to overthrow the oppressor, and back to peace. The author continues with, Lather, rinse, repeat. For 400 years. And you get the period. Of and I appreciate the little bit of comic relief. That our companion book does offer. In giving us the lather. The rinse and the repeat. For 400 years. But I honestly find. That the book of Judges. Is very difficult to read. Even though it provides us. With the accounts of the well known Bible stories. Of Deborah and Gideon. And Samson. Judges that God used to deliver the nation. It also provides us with accounts of some of the most graphic, violent, and disturbing scenes in all of Scripture. God does not sugarcoat his word here. It is a tough read. If you happen to, to read through it, you know what I'm talking about. Throughout the book of Judges, we read of the nation of Israel testing their God's patience time and time again. God is a righteous and holy God. He is a patient God, but he's also a just God. And so through the book of, of Judges, we see that he was patient with the people, but his patience had limits, and he tolerated the nation's disobedience for a season, a season of God's patience. But then God said enough. Have you ever done that as a parent? <laughs> Pat and I raised two sons, and we love our kids, but there were times that our, just, our patience ran out, and, and that was it. And, and the foot came down, and because we knew if we allowed our kids to continue doing what it was that they were doing, going down the road that they were going, it just wasn't going to end well. And, of course, as loving parents, we said, enough. Well, throughout the book of Judges, God saw his people on this cycle of disobedience. And he knew if he allowed them to continue, it was not going to end well. Judges chapter 17 verse 6 says this. In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. The nation had moved from following the instructions and remembering the covenant that they made with God. And they had agreed to follow him. Joshua, before his death, had them make that vow, repeatedly encouraging them and, and charging with following God and vowing to worship him. 
But then they allowed the fear and the weariness and the lack of discipline, the pursuit of their own interests to derail that promise. They didn't keep their covenant with God. They didn't follow his instructions. As a result, they fell into temptation and they worshipped instead the gods of the Canaanites. All the people did what was whatever seemed right in their own eyes. The Canaanite religion idealized evil traits of cult, prostitution, child sacrifice, sexual immorality, selfish greed, materialism. It was filled with, with, with wickedness. It was a me-first-anything-goes society. Has anybody ever heard of the white chair films? might not know it by that name. But they're five to seven minute films, if you will, of well-known people. And they're, they're testimonies of, of how the Lord has transformed their lives into more fully devoted followers of Jesus. And they are powerful testimonies. And if you listen to these testimonies of people like Tony Dungy, Joe Gibbs, Kathy Ireland, they all end in the same way. And this is where you might, some, some of you might connect with it. It goes on to end with person stating, I am, and they say their name, second. I am so-and-so, I am second. And after listening to just one or two of these, you see that the purpose of them is to demonstrate that God desires to be first in our lives. It can't be me first. It can't be God and. God wants to be first in our lives. And so for the Israelites, this me first, anything goes, Canaanite type of, of living would be in contradiction to the beliefs of the one true God. But as the Israelites lived side by side with the Canaanites, they were tempted and they started to take on some of those aspects of the me first, anything goes lifestyle. And it's been noted that as the emerging tendencies became further entrenched in the Israelite faith, the people began to lose the concept of their exclusiveness and their mission to be witnesses to the nation to the nations, I should say, thus becoming weakened and resolved internally and liable to the oppression of the other peoples. They got sucked in because they didn't guard themselves. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Reading from our companion book, the author writes, in some ways, this book should have never been written. If the people had simply done what they promised to do, there would have been no rebellion, no punishment, no crying out to God, no need for deliverance. They would have, there would have been no judges. But they didn't keep their promises. God's chosen nation, the people who were to reflect the very character of God, chose to turn from God and follow the self-seeking ways of the Canaanites. And before they knew it, they were oppressed by them. I attended our annual chaplaincy uh, training this past week, and 
The presenter came in and started talking about um, methamphetamines and how um, typically it's, it's one time use and you become hooked. It's just the nature of the kind of chemicals that are in this drug that, that you try it one time, you're gonna be hooked. And, and he had also talked about how that bringing an awareness of, of how addictive and, and destructive this, this drug is that, that hopefully people will obviously make the right choice um, and, and not even try it for the first time. But the presenter also shared something that many of us already know. Whether it be drugs, alcohol, or any other destructive or addictive behavior, is that the person has to get to that place where they realize that they are in bondage and that they're going to end up losing it all. And that might be their job, their family, or even their life if they don't get help. But they have to get to that rock bottom place. Because if they don't get to that rock bottom place, it doesn't matter what we do, what we say, they're not going to be able to receive that help. They've got to get to that place. And maybe you've been in that position as a, a loving family member where you've seen um, someone heading down that path and they get sucked in and they get caught in that bondage and oppression of an addiction or a destructive behavior. And, and it is a painful thing to watch, waiting until they cry out for help because you know that has to happen before you can help them. Because offers up to that point aren't going to do any good. They have to get to that place. And that's how it was with God in watching the Israelites turn away from him and get into that destructive behavior and, and end up being in that oppression. God had to patiently wait even though he was using that oppression as his discipline. He had to wait until it intensified enough for the people to cry out to him. Of course, God would hear the cries of the people. As we read the book of Judges, we see that he raises up a deliverer. A judge, of course, back then had more responsibilities than, than just somebody who oversees legal matters like our judges today. They also included military and administrative authority as well. But through the dozen or so judges over the course of the, the hundreds of years here, God would deliver his people from bondage each time as he raised up a judge, a deliverer. Because of God's love for his people, he would hear those cries of repentance and he would send that deliverer in to release them from that oppressor, ushering them into that time of peace. Does that sound familiar? For God to raise up a deliverer, to bring in a time of peace? I hope that it does, because the book of Judges points us to humanity's need of a deliverer. Of course, the deliverer with a capital D, the Lord Jesus Christ, the deliverer, the righteous judge. He has absolute authority to judge, to deliver those who cry out to him from the oppression of sin, which leads to spiritual death. Scripture says that when we turn from sin and we turn to Christ with hearts of repentance, that we're born again. 
that we're a new creation in Christ, that we're set apart to do good works, that we're to be a representation of God's nature. Of course, we need to recognize what is around us in light of who we are as followers of Jesus, though. We're not to fear the things that are going on in our world, but to be aware of them. Because if we're not careful, just like the Israelites did, we too can become enticed. And I believe anyone who says that the Bible is an antiquated book has either A, not read it, or B, has not read the headlines. The Bible is just as relevant for today as the day when it was written. Listen carefully to the words from 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 1. It says, You should know this, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Is that not speaking to the times in which we live? Not only are we living in the last days, we're also living in a time when culture worships self, doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. That is in opposition to the life of a follower of Jesus. God told the Israelites that he would no longer drive out the people living in their land. It will be a test. Would the Israelites be faithful to God or would they choose the ungodly ways of the Canaanites? You know, Christ didn't ask the Father to remove us from the world either. But he did ask that we'd be protected from the evil one. And part of how we're protected is by following God's instructions that are still so very relevant for today. And, of course, following the prompting of the Holy Spirit as well. But God, of course, leaves us in this world, number one, so that we can be the light to the world. But number one, he's testing our faith. He's testing our faith. What nature are we going to listen to? It's because as a follower of Jesus, we have a new nature in us, a nature of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. But we also have our old nature. We sometimes refer to it as the flesh or the sinful nature, the nature that we have as humanity due to the fall. And so we have the godly nature, which is holiness and righteousness and all the other characters of God, but we have the old nature in us that's still desiring the things of the world. And so these two natures are at odds within us. And so as God leaves us in the world, there's this testing of our faith. Which nature are we going to follow? Dr. David Jeremiah once recited this little poem in regards to two natures in the believer. It's packed with powerful truth. He said, two natures beat within my breast, 
One is foul, one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. See, we have these two natures. So with these two natures, whatever it is that we're feeding is going to dominate. And so we want to make sure that we heed God's instructions. What does he say that we are to do in response to the wickedness that goes on around us? A well-known preacher and author said, we should get ourselves some running shoes. Because the Bible speaks of running from four things. One is idolatry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, the Bible says, So, my dear friends, free, flee from the worship of idols. We don't want to have anything else before us. That's that putting God first in our lives. Secondly, we're supposed to flee from materialism. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11, or 9 through 11a say, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you are a man of God, so run from these evil things. See where those running shoes are going to come in handy? The third one is sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 says, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Do not belong, it, you do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. And lastly, youthful lusts, 2 Timothy 2.22. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Idolatry, materialism, sexual immorality, youthful lusts. God says, run from them. Why? Because when tolerated, they're going to become something that will ensnare us. A slippery slope of permissiveness which turns into rationalization, it's okay. Which then turns into open rebellion. I can do this. It doesn't matter. And before we know it, these things can oppress us just as the Israelites were oppressed when they worshipped the Canaanites' gods. So we run from these things. Now, I may be politically incorrect, but when... We live at a time when both spectrums of human life have been devalued to the point that abortion and assisted suicide is accepted. We're seeing the depravity of our society. When we think that legalizing a gateway drug isn't going to cause even greater harm to our society as it opens up the door for even greater drug use, we're going to see more lives destroyed. We're seeing the depravity of our society. When we believe that pornography, and there are a lot of subtle forms of that, 
that we need to run from them as well. But when we believe that pornography isn't a big deal, we see the depravity of our society. Within our culture, people do not consider these things to be wrong. Viewing pornography, sex outside marriage, allowing money, stuff to become a greater desire than the desire for God. The world says these types of behavior aren't a big deal. But look where these tolerating these things have gotten us. Broken marriages, broken families, broken lives, hopelessness, bondage, and oppression. And unfortunately, even in the church of Jesus Christ, many do not see these types of behaviors to be morally wrong. And it should grieve us. We do live in challenging times. Our nation's society is increasingly moving away from the biblically founded mores that this nation was built upon. But the word of God says that we're not to let ourselves think or indulge in evil desires. To not participate in the darkness, darkness and in the wickedness. We are to put on a shining armor of right living with the help of the Holy Spirit. Will we be tempted? Yes. But God promises us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we're given power to run, to flee from the things that can ensnare us. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can choose to feed the new nature. Each time a test comes, when we choose to feed the new nature, the new nature is going to get stronger. We're going to be able to turn away from sin. Of course, we may find that we've allowed sin in our lives. But we don't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, there's grace after all. No, we can't tolerate the sin in our lives. The Holy Spirit is going to prick our consciences, convicting us of something in our lives that's out of step with his character, and we must turn from it and repent to sorrowfully turn back to God and ask for forgiveness. The turning away from sin and getting back on track with God. And the Bible says that he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, restoring us back to him, giving us peace just as he did with the Israelites. We want to feed our godly nature, the one that is blessed. And of course, we want to keep it going to the next generation. Turning back to our companion book one last time this morning. The author writes, We lament the decay of culture, wondering how things have gotten so far off track. But with each generation turning, we're given the same opportunity. We can bemoan the loss of Judeo-Christian ethics and values, or we can make a commitment to once again love God with everything. Our heart, soul, mind, and strength and pass this commitment on down to the next generation. May this be our desire.
that we would live out our love for the Lord with every fiber of our being, allowing our actions to speak even louder than our words, to share Christ with the next generation by modeling life to full devotion to Jesus, keeping that commitment to love God with all that we are and teaching it to the next generation, our children and our grandchildren. Now I'm going to close the message in just a minute here and we'll conclude the morning with partaking of communion together. But before I close, I just ask that you just bow your heads with me because maybe the Holy Spirit's been saying something to you about the message this morning and maybe it's unconfessed sin. And then just as I pray uh, a closing prayer for the actual message part, I just want to give you opportunity um, to just come before God in your heart. If there's something out of alignment in your life, or maybe God is, is pricking your heart about, you know, sharing your faith with the next generation that we wouldn't see a cycle in our families, but that we'd follow Jesus with all that we are so that others would see. And so if you just agree with me in prayer this morning, heavenly father, we thank you so much for your truth, for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that helps us to live according to your instructions so that we can feed our new nature, our godly nature, that we'd be able to stand firm when tests come, when we're tempted, that we would choose, Lord, to follow your ways but also to remember that when we do get off track, that you will help us by convicting our spirits and, Lord, helping us to see the errors of our ways and inviting us to come with repentant hearts that we can be forgiven of our sin and get back on track. Lord, I pray, too, for courage to be able to share with this next generation all the mighty things that you have done, teaching them the instructions that you have given us so that they do not, Lord, turn away and do what is right in their eyes. Lord, help us to hold fast to your truth and to pass it on to this next generation. Empower us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.